You know, the nation we live in is, is not like it used to be. Uh, things are changing. And in my view, and, and I guess a view of a lot of people that are, are like me, it's not necessarily changing for the better. It seems in many ways it's changing for the worse. And uh, these things have an effect on us. And in order to do the job that was laid out for us to do this morning, we've got to know how to react to certain things that are going, going on in the world around us. And not surprising, the Lord didn't leave us to our own devices. He, he explained to us, He laid out for us in the Word of God how we are to react to certain things. It's not always how we want to react to things. Uh, sometimes we want to have an inappropriate reaction to certain things. But nevertheless, he, he laid out for us and made sure that we had resources to go and study and learn and, and know how we ought to react to certain things. But we make no mistake, we are living in a crooked and perverse nation today. In the view of most Christians, our society is changing. Some describe this change as the post-Christian uh, culture. I don't really care for that term because it, in my mind it conjures up the idea that the Christian culture is gone entirely. It's not gone entirely. Is it suffering? Is it hurting? Yes, it is. Uh, but that's not really what's meant by the term post-Christian culture. The term really means that uh, what society once held as normal, once held as moral, it may no longer agree with. Uh, that's what's meant by that term, by the, by the majority anyway. For example, uh, people as a majority once believed in God. And that's getting to the point where it's, it's very close anymore. Uh, they believe that the Bible was the Word of God, that Jesus was the Son of God. But today it's estimated that only about 56% of the people in America actually believe in God. Now, that's the God as we know it, the God of the Bible. Now, they may be some other, someone else, some other term they're, they're using as God, uh, Muhammad, Buddha, things like that. But the God of the Bible... According to research, and I don't know how accurate these are, I got them off the internet, and you know everything from the internet's true, so uh, if you believe that. But uh, according to, to a pretty, pretty well-known poll, about 56% of the people in America today believe in the God of the Bible. About 24% believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Now that's not Christians. That's just People as a whole, about 24% believe that the Bible is the Word of God. When you look at Christians, about 75% of Christians believe the Word is in, uh, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And you think, well, that's, that's a better number there. Not really. Think about who we're talking about. We're talking about people that, that profess themselves to be Christians. And only 75% of them believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So our society is definitely changing. The majority no longer accepts certain basic principles 
of morality that many of us older ones were taught and have tried to live by. The Old and New Testament both anymore are ridiculed uh, by people who say that it's unenlightened. It's old-fashioned. It's not the new way of thinking. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that the majority are, are getting close to a majority of people reject the Bible as the benchmark anymore. And this is evident in marriage. It's evident in the fact that uh, once, at one time marriage was the only acceptable relationship uh, by people. Now there are other relationships, non-married relationships, uh, what those people, some people refer to as alternative lifestyle relationships. These are found to be acceptable now, and they weren't at one time. Even religiously, the roles of, of men and women in leadership are, are changing, and we can see that going on around about us. And like I said, it's hard. And how are we supposed to react to this? Maybe David and I are the only ones to worry about how we ought to react to it. But how, how are we supposed to react to this? Are we supposed to get mad about it? I do sometimes. I get upset about it sometimes. Uh, what can we do to change this thing? What can we do to change the direction of, that our society is going on? <clears throat> Should we form political action committees? Should we try using the organizational power of the church, get the church together as a big group? Should, could, we, could we get them all together and try to force our way into situations to, to enforce changes? Should we resort to boycotts and picketing to try to get people to listen to us? That's what people do today. Should we resort to violence, both physical and our speech, to try to get people to listen to us, to try to change the way people see things? Should we simply change our views to match society? Should we isolate ourselves and just get away from everybody? That's, that's what I want to do too sometimes. But I believe the scriptures provide an answer in how we're to react. In a letter written by Paul to the church, uh, which was like many other churches in the New Testament, he addressed some of these things. At the time that Paul wrote this, these verses, the church was in the pre-Christian culture. And the pre-Christian culture means it was before Christianity actually took off. And you know the odd thing is that the pre-Christian culture was not completely unlike what they refer to as the post-Christian culture. Now, if you don't believe me, do a little research. You see the New Testament church was living in the, in the Roman age. The Roman Empire was coming to coming to power. It was, it was at its largest. And uh, do a little research on the, what we see as the morality of the Roman Empire. Basically, it was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Whoever was the biggest and baddest had the power. And everybody else was squashed under their feet. And that's just, that's just a broad interpretation. You can look at things that we in this building today would look at, at moral and immoral and the Roman Empire embraced it all. 
as far as immorality. So those people were facing in much the same way, the same things we face today. Christianity hadn't took off yet. Now we say Christianity's coming to an end. I'm not sure that's right. I mean, if Christianity was able to overcome at that time and grow at that time, why can't we overcome and grow today as well? The letter that Paul wrote was to the church at Philippians, the epistle to the church at Philippians. And uh, it concerned many of these things. When you think about the, the time that those people were living in, the things they were having to deal with, they were being taught Christian principles and they had to live in this world. A world not unlike the one we're living in today. So I believe what Paul wrote to them is very likely the same things that he would write to us today. The same admonition he would give to us today. We begin in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence also, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What Paul wrote in these passages, I believe, contains guidance for us today, how to live while we're living in this crooked and perverse nation. Uh, whether it's then or now, it still applies. The first thing he says there, oddly enough, is to work out your own salvation. That has an effect. Why is that? Much about because of what David said this morning. If we are not saved, how can we take the gospel to anyone else? But in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, we have to figure out how to be saved. We saw there in, in verse 12 of, of Philippians 2. And I believe that Jesus put it another way in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, when he talked about getting your own life straight to start with. He said there in Matthew 7, beginning verse 1, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eyes. You know, this passage is, is often misused to prohibit us from judging things that ought to be judged. You can't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. Judge not that you be not judged. That's the wrong, the wrong way of looking at this verse. What it's emphasizing here is the importance of getting your act together. Getting your life in order. And that's a lifelong task that we'll not, never really completely fulfill. But if we're trying 
to get our life in order, then we can help others also. I want you to look at this last, last verse here just briefly. Thou hypocrite, first cast out, of the, the, cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly. And he didn't say then you can see clearly. He said then you shall see clearly. In other words, not only are we to get our life in order, but once we get our life in order, then we're responsible to help others as well, to correct others, to judge others and what they're doing. See, it's not just a potential responsibility. It is our responsibility to get our act in order, work out our salvation, and once we have done that, then to help others also. But if we're not careful, if we're not really careful, Paul said it's possible for us to lose our salvation in the way that we react. Just simply by the way we react to others. You know, many people go about trying to change society for the better, but they do it in all the wrong ways. The things that they they are trying to do to make the society better are sins in in and of themselves. You think about somebody that bombs an abortion clinic, sets fire to an abortion clinic. I have no doubt that they really want the Word of God to be done in that they want abortions to be stopped. But they're going about it all the wrong way. We can do that as well. There's many ways that we can go about doing things just in our speech, the way we we speak to those that we disagree with. It can be a problem in how we we react to others. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. There's a list of a lot of what's going on in the world today right there. That's not a complete list. That's a pretty good start. Verse 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that ye, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's your partially, partial list. We see in verse 20, Another partial list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I suppose everybody in this room can see there's a problem there. We're not to be a part of that. But when we continue on, well, idolatry, we understand we can't be a part of that. Witchcraft, yes. Wait a minute. What about hatred? Is that not what happens a lot of times in the world today? When we disagree with someone, when we don't like their morality, when we don't like that they're not being moral, then all of a sudden our actions can indicate we hate them. Right? Just because of our actions. We don't talk about variance much. It's not a word I use very often. So I had to see what it actually meant. It's a quarrel, contention, debate. Is that not what we do sometimes when we're involved in discussions with people with whom we disagree with about religious matters? We quarrel. We debate. Emulations. Didn't know that one either. 
heat, malice, indignation. You ever been indignant with someone that you thought was living wrong? It's on the same list as adultery, fornication, all those other things. It's the same list. And this is how we react. Wrath. Yeah. Sometimes we, we, uh, we have wrath. Sometimes we strive with those we disagree with. Envyings. It's not completely like what we would think about envy. It's ill will. Ever have any ill will toward a person that's not living the way you think they ought to be living? You see, it's on the same list with those sins, those moral sins that we want to avoid today. And as we talked about, there have even been murders committed in the, by, by trying to do the right thing. You get so far lost that in trying to do the right thing, you take the life of someone else. Paul saw the need to be very careful when trying to save others because our own actions can cause us to be lost also. 1 Corinthians 9 and 27, Paul said, But I keep under my body and brain in subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He understood this, that in trying to teach others and preach others, he could become so ingrained in it and so have so many emotions in it that he could lose himself in that. And that's a problem today. How tragic would it be to go around teaching others, preaching to others, and then do something to disqualify ourselves? <clears throat> Verse 12 also indicated that we should do this with fear and trembling. You know, the word fear is not, when it's connected to God today, is not looked on very popularly. What are you talking about fear? People don't want to hear about the love of God. That's all they want to hear about. If not hearing about the love of God, don't talk to me about anything. But Jesus certainly taught about the fear of the Lord. In Matthew 10 and 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus taught about fearing God. So I wonder today if we've diluted the fear of the Lord so much that people don't really consider it to be a problem. When we're defining the word trembling, have we diluted fear so much that people don't think there's a need to fear the Lord anymore? But we need to have the proper fear and trembling. You know, without the proper fear and trembling, it's unlikely that we're going to work very hard at finding our own salvation. Why would you need to if you didn't fear anything? Fear is the driving force behind finding the need to find salvation. Could this be a reason that there's so much apathy and neglect in the world today? No fear. Verse 13 talks about letting God work in us. I always thought that was an interesting scripture. In order to succeed as lights of the world, the Bible says that we have to let God work in us. 
That's according to Philippians 2 and 13. You know, when we let God work in us, He is capable of getting us to do things that we never thought we could do, that we never thought possible, far beyond our own ability to comprehend. Ephesians 3 and verse 20, the Bible says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. You see, by God working in us, we're able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we ever thought we could do. And he is there working in us. If we'll allow him to. In Philippians 1 and 6, Be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can trust one thing. If we'll allow and we'll put forth the effort, God will put will do that work in us. He'll do it from the day that we obey the gospel until the day the Lord returns again. But we have to get out of the way. As long as we're influencing that with our own desires, our own thoughts, our own needs, our own wants, then we're not going to let the work of God's work be completed in us. Then this one gets me terribly. Verse 14 of Philippians chapter 2. He says to do it without murmuring and complaining. I guess that's the hardest thing for me to do. I guess downright I like to murmur and complain. I think I just like it. Because I seem to do it in a magnitude of ways. But we need to have a positive attitude when we're trying to confront the crooked and perverse nation. We need to have a positive attitude. If you don't think the, the world is getting worse about murmuring and complaining, just spend a little time on social media. You'll see the most benign post someone puts maybe they have a young person that's singing a song on there and maybe he's not singing it perfectly but he's doing it and he's doing a pretty good job far better job than I am and you just go down the comments and see what people are saying about him it's sickening the most benign thing you talk to you talk to Carrie it's not so much that you can you can't make anybody, everybody happy anymore. It's hard to make anybody happy. If you're a coach, if you're a school teacher, it's negativity all the time. And I know that's a problem for me. But if we're going to live in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation, we need to learn to be positive. We need to stop being complainers. If we don't, it's going to cause us to be a lot less effective in spreading the gospel. Notice the effect that murmuring and complaining had on the nation of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. These things were written so we'd understand that people murmured and complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. 
And yet here I am, murmuring and complaining. They happened, that th those things happened to them, for example, so that I wouldn't do that. Yet here I am, thinking I stand when I'm about to fall. We need to get along with our, especially with our brothers, brothers and sisters. Unity among our brothers and sisters in Christ is extremely important as we try to convince the world concerning Jesus. John 17, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We've got to work together. We've got to believe in one another. We've got to support one another. Continuing on in the 22nd verse, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. we got to be at one with each other and one with Christ. If the body of Christ is going to influence the world in any way today, it, it can't be with murmuring and complaining. It can't be destroying itself by murmuring and complaining. And then we skip down to verse 16, and Paul concludes by telling us to hold fast the word of life. The word of life, the word of God, the Bible. The thing that only 24% of, of people in America anymore believe is the inspired word of God, the Bible. It's our only offensive weapon. You ever think about that? I'm sure you remember Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What is armor? It's a defensive weapon. It's defensive. It protects you. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in the world. What are we trying to do in this crooked and perverse generation? This is what we're struggling as Christians. We're struggling against. <clears throat> against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth. Defensive weapon and having on the breastplate of righteousness a defensive weapon and your feet shod with the preparation of gospel a defensive weapon above all taking the shield of faith a defensive weapon wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation a defensive weapon and the sword of the spirit the offensive weapon that's the only offensive weapon and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God it's the only offensive weapon we've got. And we have to use it and we have to believe in it. We have to believe that it is the inspired word of God. And we need to hold fast to it. The Spirit uses the word of God to convict people of their sin. You see, it's an offensive weapon. It produces repentance. It produces a need for baptism. It brings about the new birth. James 1 and 18 says, Of his own will beget, he, will beget he us with the word of truth, the Bible, the word of God, that we should be a kind of first fruit, 
fruits of his creatures. Also in 1 Peter 1 and 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God is what changes us. What gives us the knowledge to know we need to change. It is our offensive weapon. And we have to hold fast to it. If we don't hold fast to it, then we'll get away from it. It is the word of life. It's a word of life. It's, it's, it's the weapon we have to use in our own study when we apply it to our own lives. You know, I look back in the Old Testament and uh, an example of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, and, and Ezra here basically did three things. And I want you to notice what they are. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Do we do that? Then the second thing is, he did it. He prepared his heart and then he did it. And then finally, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Three things he did. He prepared his heart to seek the Lord. He, he sought the word of God, the, the law of the Lord. He did it. And then he used that to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. That's what we have to do today. Three simple things. And it involves these things that we've studied this evening. Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Letting God work in us without murmuring and complaining. And holding fast the word of life. And if we do that, then we see results. And here's the results we see. Philippians 2.15 That ye may be blameless and harmless. Don't you want to be blameless and harmless? I think that's what we all want. Is to be blameless and harmless. Because we'll do the job we were told about this morning. The sons of God without rebuke. Don't you want to be there on that day and, and God doesn't rebuke you? Because you've done what you were supposed to do. Even in the middle of this crooked and perverse nation. Among whom ye shine as lights of the world. If we follow these examples that Paul taught. Then we see these results. If our ultimate objective is changing the hearts of men. To the ways of God. This is how we do it. This came from experience. It came from Paul's own experience. And then in the 16th verse of Philippians 2, he says, Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. This tells us how important Paul saw this. If he didn't do this, as he laid out in these verses in, in Philippians chapter 2, he said, by doing this, he could hold first forth the word of life that I may rejoice. He was talking about himself. I can rejoice because I've done what I was supposed to do. In the day of the Lord, I can rejoice that I have not run in vain. He, he was afraid of running in vain. He was afraid his labor would be in vain. He wanted his labor to not be in vain. And he said, if I'll do these things, it won't be. We can have that same result. We can look forward to those things. We live in a hard time today. It may get harder. But if we'll follow these principles that Paul has laid out, 
We're following the Word of God. We're doing all we can do. And we're doing it the best way it can be done because that's the principle set forth in the Word of God. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.